So this is our Bible Institute night. Uh, I know I say it every week, but we have a Bible Institute, and you can take classes and earn an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree if you want. It's all free. We have 907 students as of uh, today, so that number continues to grow every week, which is kind of cool. Students are joining us from all over the world, and uh, it's neat. I like to think about the idea how you can live in a little place like this, and uh, God can use it to make a difference all over the world. Isn't that cool? So that's that's on you guys. That's very neat. So that's what's uh, happening with that. Um, we're working through an Old Testament survey right now. You can take this. You can just kind of hang out and audit with us. That's fine. Or you, if you want, you can register with the Bible Institute, take it for credit. But this way is cool. Uh, also, our weekend messages get rolled into courses too. So you can get a lot of schoolwork done that way. I think I figured it out that if you if you stuck with it and we're here on Wednesdays and the weekends over about a four-year period or so, you could earn an associate's degree just by showing up. And, well, there's a little extra reading and you've got to write some papers, but pretty much showing up is the bulk of it. So there you go. Okay. We are um, in a part of the Old Testament where we're working right now from 2 Samuel through 2 Kings. And... Uh, We'd been working through First Kings, and we sort of got to a place uh, where the, uh, everything was going to shift dramatically, and we have talked about Saul's reign and David's reign and Solomon's reign, and we left it a couple of weeks ago when Solomon had died. And the kingdom is about to divide and change, but I thought before we jumped into that uh, discussion... Uh, we would take just a couple of weeks, last week and this week, and we'll look at some stuff that was happening right around that time, and it was particularly some books. And so uh, it was the Psalms, and almost half of the Psalms were written by King David, so it fit in that time period, although the Psalms actually covers about a 900-year period. We looked at that last week. The Proverbs, most of which were written by Solomon, and so we're in his time frame. And... Um, there's, there's two other books that uh, I want to talk about that Solomon wrote. That's Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, but we're just going to touch on them briefly. And then the other book that's kind of I'm putting here, because it, it doesn't really fit in a whole lot of other places, and that's the book of Job. And uh, Job was written much earlier. Job was probably written around the time of Abraham, believe it or not. It's, it's very possibly um, one of the oldest books that we have in the Bible. But it's considered wisdom literature, and it's, it's kind of grouped in with the Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon, and Job are often kind of grouped together. So I thought we would take a look through Job today. Like I said, at the end, I'm going to try not to spend too much time on Job so I can just kind of briefly touch on Ecclesiastes and um, Song of Solomon. But I like to talk about Job, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, You may just get Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon from whatever's in your notes there. (laughs) But... um, Job is a, it's a fascinating book, and the reason I think it's so important, it's known as wisdom literature, and I'll get more into that in a moment, but what it really does is it keeps us from putting God in a box. Job will absolutely destroy your God box, which is really good, because all of us need to do that. We have a tendency to, to put God in a box. We, we get a, an idea about who God is, and we, we then begin to limit Him to that, and you can't limit God into anything. And... Uh, and yet we will do that um, for lots of different reasons. So throughout the course of our walk with God, we need to be challenging that all the time. And Job will absolutely challenge that, that thinking in your life because things are going to happen in Job that you don't think should happen. 
and, uh, and yet they do, uh, and there's reasons for it. So let me, let me get in and kind of set it up. Uh, I'm going to read some passages, and then I'll, we'll get back, and we'll, we'll sort of find a starting place for it, and we'll talk through what's going on. So um, we're going to look at part of Job 1, and then more of 1, and then part of chapter 2. So Job 1, 6 through 12. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you uh, not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, um, what you have there just quickly is that the enemy says that people only love God because of what God does. And God says that people love him because of who he is. And so there's, there's, the, there's the conflict between the enemy and God and what's going on. Now, Satan um, just was, and I'll just, I usually refer to him as the evil one. Uh, he was originally one of God's holy angels, but he rebels against God and he's cast out of heaven. And we, we see that picture in Luke 10, 18. And that's kind of the, that was the first stage of his judgment that he was cast out of heaven. Um, his kingdom is vanquished at the cross. Uh, we, we know that. Uh, and um, later, he still has some things that he's up to. Later, he's going to be bound in the abyss for a thousand years. And then he'll be cast in the lake of a fire for eternity. So... Um, so he's, he's had those first two things that have happened. He was kicked out of heaven, and his kingdom now has been vanquished at the cross. But until that final judgment happens, the evil one is um, still the prince uh, of this world. Uh, John 14.30 says that. Um, and yet, according to Job, he, he has some limited access into the heavenly realms. Uh, and there we just saw he was in the presence of God. Now... We also know that, that God is absolutely perfect and, and um, holy and without sin. And so sometimes people wonder, well, how is it possible then that the evil one could actually be in heaven? And for, but for briefly, you've got to see that. He was there and he had to go. And he was summoned in by God also. He couldn't just kind of show up. He was, they were all summoned in. And um, the answer really is about God's sovereignty in restraint of sin. So what he's doing is he's been called to give an account of himself there in Job 1. God initiates the meeting. Uh, he leads the proceedings. He's in control at all times. You need to know that God is. And uh, the result of the meeting was that the enemy's power was limited in what he could do in verse 12 and what's happening. And there are also some things to note because people will ask about, well, what was the enemy doing there? Um, he does not have open access to God's presence. You need to know that. It was, it's limited. He has to be summoned by God. Uh, the visit like that would be temporary, uh, and, and any time there is limited. Uh, in no way is the purity of heaven tainted by that brief God-ordained um, presence uh, of a sinful being. Um, it's somehow quarantined by God's you know, regulatory power. And, 
He only has limited access, and that's completely taken away at the final judgment. Um, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation, it says, He wipes away all tears from our eyes and, and um, reveals the new Jerusalem and promises the complete absence of sin. So whatever these encounters are, they're temporary at best. And ultimately what happens is God's holiness will, will consume all sin. That's what's going to happen. And until that day... Um, his holiness regulates us and, and uh, so we need to understand that because st- all of us still struggle in these areas uh, and yet we are seen in the perfection of his son as, as believers already and that's a fascinating deal that we've talked about being justified in the process but what's going on is that, that somehow in this big heavenly drama that's being revealed to us we're sort of getting backstage access to what's going on um, we see this encounter take place. Fascinating encounter. Let's go on. Job uh, 1.13. One day when uh, Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they're dead, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised in all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So, uh, any way you cut that, that was a bad day. Um, uh, You know, just imagine the the tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy befall Job uh, in the process, and 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 he, you know, he takes that in, and he he doesn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But look, more happens. Chapter 2, verse 1. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered uh, the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So, again, just just trying to paint a picture and, and, uh, you know, sort of try and see what's going on here. And we'll talk about it more. But I I got to introduce his three friends to you, too. And and he has three friends that throw up. Show up. Verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, 
the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So his three friends show up, and for seven days and seven nights, they're all just sitting there, and nobody's saying anything. Okay, so now you kind of have the, the setup. So, as I said, the book of Job is called Wisdom Literature. And it's unique in, in the Scripture. Um, uh, understanding uh, most of literature is more black and white. But wisdom literature is embracing the fact that, that we can't fully understand the depths of God. But we're going to follow him anyway because he knows better than we do. That's what lit- wisdom liter- uh, literature shows us. It's, again, it keeps us from trying to put him in a box, which is what we desperately want to do. Let's get him in a box where we can kind of control him, and you can't. And God does things sometimes we don't fully understand. And that leads us to a place where we have to know that he's good. See, that's part of this whole process, and it happens in wisdom literature. So, as the, Job starts out... We're introduced to a guy named Job, and he's, by all accounts, an an extremely good guy. Uh, The Bible says that he's a righteous man, but but he's he's an all-around good guy. He loves his family. He's doing all the things he should be doing. And then all of a sudden, we get caught up into the heavenlies, and and we're not explained exactly what's going on there, uh, because we don't understand it, a little outside of our realm. Um, But God says, have you seen this really good guy, Job? He's, he's He's an amazing guy. And the enemy goes, well, he's only good because you, you bless him. Take away all the stuff he has and watch and see he won't love you. And God says, all right. Now, that's the action that should get your attention because I would say that goes against whatever you really think about God. He said, if you're, you're a good dude, you're a good person and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, what's up with what just happened? Why in the world is that happening? Uh, that's not how you're supposed to be, God. And then Job starts losing everything. Everything, he, he loses everything. He gets afflicted with boils. He's sick. Everything's bad. And, and we're looking at that. And the question that we should be asking is, what in the world's going on? Why, why is this even possible? And then his three friends show up. They're there to comfort him. And yet, as you read through the, and I hope you read through it all, because we can't talk about it all. They, they all have God in their own box. And theologically, every one of them thinks that Job must have done something to deserve this. That there must be some sin in his life that's calling, causing this. And see, that's what you have to get at because that's what most of us, that's what we think happens. That, that bad things are happening in response to something that we're doing. Otherwise, God should be taking care of it and it shouldn't happen. So we put God in that whole box. And you need to see that as a trap. All right? And, and yet, that's, it's, it's almost all of us, we could sit down and figure out at what point you have God in a box. And, and so what happens is that for chapter after chapter, these three friends are talking and they're all saying, in effect, to Job, you must have done something wrong or this wouldn't be happening to you. That's got to be what's happening. And, and uh, we have a tendency to do that in the way that we think about things. And that's why it's so important to read what's going on with Job. And this happens chapter after chapter after chapter. And, and if we put God in a box, see, we limit his sovereignty, we limit his majesty, and it, it's, it, he becomes less than who he really is. And so we, we have to blow apart these God boxes. And, and in Job 38, God, Chinese, God shows up in a whirlwind. I love that. 
Job 38.1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. That's a pretty... If, can you, I just think about God showing up. Prepare yourself like a man. I'm, I, I, okay. Not even sure what... Uh, after you probably scraped it together, that's what you would do. Um, so he shows up. Remember, God shows up sometimes, and he, often in ways that we don't expect. Like, here it shows up in a whirlwind. That would get your attention, don't you think? Uh, it's like when we, we were, uh, when we were in First Kings earlier, um, uh, and it, like in Exodus, he showed up in a burning bush. And, and uh, in 1 Kings, remember, he shows up uh, in, in, in the... Uh, it says this, the Lord said, go out and stand uh, on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountain apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. That verse is all about that God shows up in different ways. Again, so you can't put him in a box. Otherwise, you're going to say, well, God always shows up in a whirlwind, or God always shows up in a burning bush, or God always shows up in an earthquake. God always shows... No, you, you don't know how God's going to show up, because you, you, can't, you can't put him in that kind of box, and yet we struggle with doing that. So here in Job, he speaks, uh, uh, God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, and he says, in effect, okay, you guys have all been talking, and then he starts asking the questions, where were you when I laid the foundations of, of, your, of everything. Where were you when I laid all the pillars? Where were you when I did all these things? And he goes on with that in 39, 40, and 41, you know, just letting them know that they don't have a clue of what they're coming with. And then we finally get to the last chapter of Job. And, and all of that, that entire book is leading you to this point. All of Job is leading you to this chapter. Uh, and and, and the, the thing is, it says, Then Job answered the Lord, so after the Lord had given him chapter after chapter of where were you, can you understand, how could you know, could you even plumb the depths of the Almighty, Job says, and this is key, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I, I, I've come to realize, in effect, what he's saying, I can never understand the way that you run the universe. So... I've got to trust in you and that you're good and that you're a righteous God and that you're a just God and that you're a holy God and that you're a loving God because I've come to realize there's no way that I can understand who you are completely. And, and then he says this, this is what Job says. Okay, I know you've asked me these questions, Job 42, 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without, without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So in effect, he's saying, listen, I've, I've heard about you. And I've, I've heard all these things about you, uh, and, and I had repeated all these things that I've heard about you, and I, I, you know, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of who you were uh, because I'd heard about you, but now I've had this moment, and I've seen you for who you are, and I fully understand now, is what Job's saying, that you're God, you're the God of the universe, and I'm not. That's, that is such a significant point that we all have to get to in order to really experience life. That's why it's so important that you get your, your God box challenged. Because no matter how much you 
think you know, we, we scratch the surface of who he is. And yet, we have to be settled in the point that he's good. You've got to, because he is. He's good. He's God. And he's got us throughout eternity. As believers in Christ, he has us forever. And things will sometimes happen because we live in a fallen world and we have a very real enemy. And, and so we experience difficult things sometimes. But it doesn't mean that God isn't good. It just means that this thing is bigger than we understand sometimes. And, and when we get to those places where, where we struggle, instead of us trying to... So we always want to be able to put something to it. We, there needs to be a cause and effect. There needs to be a reason. There need, and and you, you have to just sometimes know that it's beyond what you can work out in your own mind. You just can't get there. But God is still good. And see, for us, we all have to have that moment. We all have to have that point in time when we understand that. Beyond anything else we get, that we get, that we get, that God is always good. And we can trust Him. No matter what the circumstance. Because all the circumstances you face as a believer are temporary. As hard as they are sometimes. They're temporary. And God is good. Eternally good. Always good. And when Job finally gets to that moment, then he realizes how he should never ever put God in a box. How in comparison, we're, we're just, we can't even begin to understand the depths of God. And yet, because of our pride and our ego and the things that we get stuck in, we do that all the time. It's, it's our tendency to do that. So, you know, we, we press into this place where we encounter God. And books like Job help us do that. And, and everywhere in the Bible... When, when someone has that kind of encounter with God, it changes them forever. It fundamentally changes them forever. I, I think in Isaiah 6, I think I put your note in there. Uh, you know, um, King Uzziah has just died. and He was a good king. And all of Israel is freaked out about what's going to happen now that, that he's gone. What's, you know, is they're going to get a bad king? What's going to take place? Everybody's in the temple. Uh, Isaiah 6, 1, 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It changes Isaiah profoundly forever, this encounter with God. And, and so there's this, there's this point where we come to that realization where it's, it's no longer what I've heard about God, but, but we, we sort of understand, we, we see who He is, that, that he's, he's not a God that can be managed, and he's, he's not a God that can be tamed, and he's, he's not a God that can be bridled. He's not a God that you can put into a box even though you want to. Uh, if you've ever read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, there's something that's said in there in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's one of my favorite little scenes. You kind of have to read the whole book, but I wanted to share it with you. Aslan. So Aslan is the Jesus character. He's a lion. All right? Uh, and, the, and so now we're looking in the book. Uh, Aslan is the lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And it's this great picture of this, what we're talking about. That, that see, if we, if we can put God in a box, it, it, we kind of make him safe. 
Uh, and, and that's not what you're aiming for because he's better than that. He's good. And, and, and so you can't control who he is. And, and yet that's going to be a struggle. If we're honest, that's one of the things that we will struggle with throughout the course of our life until we're with him. That we're going to try and, without meaning to, until we have that revelation that he's good and we can trust him, um, we will often try to control him. And anything that happens, we'll blame on performance issues. We'll always look for cause and effect. Instead of just going, God, I don't understand this, but I know that you're good and I trust you. And you're going to see me through whatever this is. You're going to take me in whatever way. See, God's he's bigger than anything that we can imagine. He doesn't fit uh, into our little box. He, he won't allow us to stay in the center of our little stories. That's why I always tell you that. See, it's his story. He's the center of the story. We, we revolve around him. And that's where life is found. So, so we have to avoid the tendency that we have to try and um, sort of define God by some tidy little manageable systems that we have. Uh, because then we, we, reduce, if we reduce the mystery of our faith to the certainty of our understanding. And, and there's, you've got to hang on to the, the mystery of your faith at some level. Because that's where life is, see? It's an adventure. We can't figure it all out. If we could figure it all out, we wouldn't need God. And we desperately need God. And He's good. And you can trust Him in the process. It's like, most of you know my wife, Alice. I I know Alice, I think, probably better than anybody on the planet. But I don't fully know her. And she's finite. How How can I fully ever expect to know God until I'm with Him for eternity? And then at the end of Job 42.12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. Uh, He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. So there's a big, huge restoration that happens in that um, because God is good. It's a picture of His goodness. And and so when you, you know, it's okay when when you're reading through the Scripture and you, you don't quite, can't quite fathom it. Just hang on to the part that God is good. And, and allow the Holy Spirit to continue showing you some of those things that are in the process. So I, I did exactly what I said I didn't want to do, is I took most of the time talking about Job. Ecclesiastes, in two minutes. Uh, it's, Solomon isn't actually identified as the author, not directly, but it's, it's, it's believed that there's a lot of clues that point to him in the process. And so um, the, the time of that writing would be during his life, sometime between 970, uh, which was his reign was 970-930. So, and we think this was written early on, sort of around 935 B.C. And uh, it's a book of perspective. And ultimately, when you read Ecclesiastes, it's, uh, it's, the very, it's, it's kind of depressing. But it reveals the depression that results from trying to seek happiness in worldly things. That's what Solomon, that was the problem. And that's what that book's about. It's about what happens when you try and find life in worldly things instead of finding your life in the Lord. So um, we, we can see when we read the book through the eyes of a person who's very wise, but he's trying to find meaning in temporary human things. And it's all temporary and it doesn't work. And uh, it has no meaning in it. And in the end, he comes to accept the faith in God is the only way to find personal meaning. That's what happens at the end of Ecclesiastes. So um, some people stay away from Ecclesiastes because they, they don't understand why it's that. But that's the whole picture of what's going on. It's, it's how depressing life is if you're trying to find your life in worldly things. Your life is only ever found in your relationship with God and, uh, because that's eternal and everything else is temporary. 
so that's Ecclesiastes. I think I put in your notes, it's broken into four different discourses. So I think that's there. So you can read those later. Song of Solomon, also written by Solomon. We think that one's written towards the end of his reign, uh, around 965 B.C. And uh, ultimately, it's a, it's a picture of a type of Christ and the church as the bridegroom and bride. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Um, and, it, and it really is, is about caring, commitment, delight in, in relationship uh, in that process. Uh, so, so it's also a great read, and I'd have you read that too when you get a chance. But I've talked for a lot again, as I thought I would, but I'm done now. If you're watching on video, thanks for watching. Come and uh, if you can't ever come, come and visit us. We'd love to have you, and God bless you. Okay. Thanks for watching this broadcast from Keys Vineyard Community Church in Big Pine Key, Florida. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more information, log on to keysvineyard.com. We'll see you next time.